0: Gold? Who sees gold? I see nothing but
1: air. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Decrypting Crypto Podcast. As always, I am joined by my co-host Matthew Howes-Barbie. Matt, it's great to be here with you today.
0: That's great to be chatting to you austin again in a in another very uneventful week in the in the world of cryptocurrency as always as always right
1: <laughs> so you had an awesome opportunity to speak with Ricardo Spagni, also known as Fluffy Pony on Twitter. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about your who Ricardo is and the conversation that you got to have with him
0: yeah I was uh I was kind of fanboying a bit here when I was when I was chatting to Ricardo I have to be honest I, he's one of the founding members of the um Monero core team. He's now kind of the the lead maintainer of the the Monero project. He's he's been working across like a number of different projects, and he's a big advocate of privacy. He's been in the space from the really early days. He has a bizarre moniker that he goes under, which we <laughs> dig into in the interview. Um, but more than anything, I just thought he was actually just a really nice guy, um, and. While there are a lot of great people that we've spoken to, I think that there is also a lot of big egos in the blockchain space. And one thing I would say about Ricardo from speaking to him, uh, I certainly didn't get that feeling from him. And he's well within his rights, really, to have a big ego. So really nice guy, done a whole lot for the space. And uh, yeah, it was a super interesting interview that we dug into.
1: Yeah. And I know that you all went on to talk a little bit about the congressional hearings uh, that mm. are happening around Libra, which we've been discussing so much lately and the potential impact that that can have on the greater blockchain and cryptocurrency space. So that's definitely something that I'm, uh, I've am i been interested to hear about. I do want to uh, mention that going off of Last week's podcast, uh, we, where we also discussed the congressional hearings, I gave a bit of an overview of some of the the more sort of poignant and interesting points that were made in the hearings. But I actually neglected to mention the most important one, uh, the one that that was heard in in halls all around the country and the world, which was that Representative Warren Davidson, for the first time, brought up a term that had not yet been heard in the hall. Of Congress, and that was shitcoin. So-
0: <laughs> <laughs> we went full crypto, didn't we? <laughs> yes, it has
1: all come full circle. Um, there is a fantastic tweet that we can link to with with a video um, where you can watch that for
0: everything that it is. <laughs> That's. That's all I want from a congressional hearing, really. That it just gets straight to the important points and gives me the comic relief that I desperately need. Uh, <laughs> brilliant stuff. That's really good stuff. Um, yeah. So with uh, with Ricardo, yeah, it was definitely interesting. We we said at the start of this series, right? Every time we get on a guest, we're gonna we're gonna ask that guest what they think about Libra. Is it a is it a force for good? Is it a force for evil? Uh, with someone like Ricardo, I think that was a very interesting question to pose because it's someone that has ultimately been incredibly pro-decentralization and to the extreme, right? Like Monero is one of the like OG privacy coin projects. They value uh, privacy more than anything. And uh, <laughs> I think it's it's somewhat interesting and uh very very entertaining to hear Ricardo's response to some of this. I think that we're getting a lot of different opinions here. I thought that his answer to the question was was very balanced but he he shared some really interesting insight that I'm not going to kind of spoil uh, because he he gives some really good stuff right at the end of the interview around that but outside of the uh, the Libra, Piece, which seems to be all encompassing right now in the in the <laughs> blockchain space, um, I I went through a few things with him and uh, Ricardo's been talking a lot about security tokens. Security tokens we have kind of touched on uh, quite a bit in series two. We had a great interview with uh, Andrew Keys from Consensus, which um for any of you that haven't listened to that one go back into the archives and listen to it because it's 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 one of those episodes i remember when i was doing the interview and it's like my mind was kind of exploding as as andrew was talking but we talk a little bit about what it would look like to tokenize a company and uh also ricardo kind of shares with us what some of the things in the privacy-based technologies he's most uh most excited about and and also more importantly i pose probably the biggest question of all to ricardo at the start here and i ask him why he goes under the pseudonym fluffy pony and we <laughs> we, we reveal all you know we we only answer uh, and ask the most important questions here yes. on the podcast right <laughs> <laughs> all right so we've given a bit of an overview there let's dive straight into to the interview with ricardo Spagni ricardo it's great to have you on the podcast thanks for joining us thank you so much for having me so for all of our listeners out there ricardo spani is the lead maintainer of monero he was one of the founding developers there and goes under the pseudonym fluffy pony and that's where I thought I would begin our interview on probably the most important question of all. Uh, for, for any of our listeners that don't know, could could you explain why you go under the pseudonym Fluffy Pony, Ricardo? <laughs> uh, start with the easy question,
2: why don't you? Um, no, um, I, I got given the nickname, the moniker, um, many, many years ago, one of my first jobs. And um, I have tried to shake it. You know, and it just stuck. So um, (laughs) when I first got involved with Bitcoin, I went through a bunch of pseudonyms because I was deathly afraid that the government was going to come kick down my door for working on this terrible divisive software. And uh, when things settled down, I was like, okay, I'm not going to get arrested for doing this. And uh, I started using my Fluffy Pony nickname, which I've had for like... At this point in time, it's nearly two decades, and I started using it for cryptocurrency-related stuff. Um, and I was like, "Well, you know, if no one's going to complain, that's great."
0: <laughs> I feel like of all the all the industries right now, it's probably one of the more accepting of random pseudonyms as well. Definitely. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's jump into. Some of the slightly more important questions at hand, and one of the things I've been following a lot of the things that you've been doing over the years, Ricardo. I find your Twitter very entertaining. So, any of our uh, listeners that haven't been following Ricardo on Twitter, you should definitely do that. But recently, I, I've I've seen you writing a lot about and talking quite a lot about, along with the rest of the industry, to be honest, security tokens. And for a lot of our listeners either getting their feet wet slightly with cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology. And there's a lot of terminology to get a handle of. And I wondered if you could give a basic explanation to our listeners on on what a security token is.
2: Sure. So I think the, the basic idea of a security token stems from this idea that right now, if you have a company and you want to have shares in it or you want to offer shares in it, then you do so through... The traditional mechanism of commercial agreements and uh and and share certificates and so on and and that's fine there's you know absolutely nothing wrong with that but the problem is when that when the the person who owns the shares wants to get rid of them for whatever reason um maybe they need the money you know um, like like they have their reasons for wanting to sell and unless it is publicly traded it is extremely difficult to sell those shares because you basically have to go out and hunt for uh, effectively just like a random third party to buy your shares. So the mm-hmm. the idea goes, what if instead of issuing those shares through the traditional means, we issued them through a token and the token uh, can be on, it doesn't matter how the token itself is, uh, is issued, that can be on Ethereum or Tari or whatever, it doesn't matter, colored coins. But the idea is that now, instead of me having shares, I've just got these tokens that represent shares. And, uh, and now there can be a secondary market because a cryptocurrency exchange can go and add support for, you know, um, security shares effectively in Ricardo's ice cream company. Um, and those can trade freely. There can be a price discovery mechanism because of that. Um, and there can be all sorts of interesting things that can happen uh, because these shares now exist and are traded uh, freely. Um, and of course, exchanges are regulated, so there's nothing wrong with, it's not like we're talking about ir- uh, unregulated or uh, illegal securities. Of course, you can do those as well, um, and you can trade them on decentralized exchanges. But in the context of security tokens, it largely seems to be, uh, the discussion largely seems to be around how to do so in a regulated fashion. Right. And and there's, there's a lot of discussion about whether security tokens should just represent shares like one to one, should they carry voting rights? You know, there's there's all sorts of things like that, and uh, or should they just be effectively like all I care about is I want to profit from the existence of this company, so you know I, I care about the the my token going up in value and selling it later on, which is typically what a security does. I don't care about dividends. I don't care about voting rights. So there's there's a lot of discussion about. What it should look like, and what what the ideal security token should look like, um, and I think that ultimately it's going to depend on a case by case basis. Some companies will veer towards, uh, you know, companies that do decide to issue this way will veer towards more traditional. One token represents one share, and uh, you have voting rights, and you get dividends, and and and. And there'll be others which are it, it, it almost doesn't matter at all. It's just to have this like ability to exit earlier. And the reason it's exciting is because if you take a look at um, venture capital firms as an example, and they're a great, they're obviously, they spend a lot of time and money and effort investing in early stage startups, VC firms, typically the amount of time it takes to go from an early stage investment to a liquidity event, i.e. when they sell their shares and get a bunch of money for all the risk they took is nine years which is an incredibly long time. And it's also incredibly high risk. They need to make investments where they are like as certain as they can be that this company is still going to be around in nine years. And yeah. it's, it's commensurate. I mean, the reward they get is commensurate with the risk, but it's still just like just possibly one of the most risky things that you can do. Now, flip it on its head and go like, hey, we can exit pretty much whenever we want because there's this, you know, free floating market that exists and uh, we can exit over time. So we can go like, we're two years in, the company's doing well, but we'd like to exit just a little bit of our position in order to, you know, claw back some liquidity to invest in other startups. So now it opens it up and it means that that not only can VCs reinvest funds a lot faster, which is of course great for entrepreneurs, But it means that ordinary people can go pick these shares up on the secondary market where they might not have been able to, they wouldn't have been exposed to the deal flow on that sort of primary issuance. So they can go to the secondary market, which would be a normal exchange, buy tokens in this really cool idea, which is actually coming to fruition, and then, you know, hold on to them for however uh, short or long period of time they feel is uh, necessary. And then go and sell those tokens back in the market if they feel that the company is going nowhere or if they feel the company is successful and they've made enough money.
0: I think that's a really interesting part of security tokens. It seems like to distill down some of the things that you, you've talked about there from a, a a benefit point of view, you've got where you would traditionally have Non liquid assets in non public companies, i.e., buying shares in a privately held firm, you now immediately create liquidity. You can buy, sell, and you can do that in a much more trusted way than going through just like uh, a deal with an individual that you have no real trust around. And I mean, we've seen a lot of that with companies like one that comes to mind is like Coinbase. I mean, this happens outside of blockchain, right? Where I know a lot of the early investors in Coinbase's like seed rounds were being contacted. Can I buy your uh, your shares on the secondary market? Coinbase can then turn around and say like, hey, part of the agreement is you can't sell these until the liquidity event. So it's that that's a challenge for investors. I think it also puts a lot of pressure on startups when you have one giant or two giant VC firms that are waiting for an exit in nine years. That's going to sway the decision-making process put a lot of pressure on the startup owners as well. Definitely, I think from a consumer point of view as well, right? It democratizes the investment opportunity, which is only good because I do think while VCs take a lot of the risk, they also hold way too much power in in the space. Yeah, they do. Um, I mean,
2: that's definitely true. And and I think there's a there's a challenge there because i i don't I don't sort of want to speak ill of VCs. I mean, they put a lot of effort into what they do. They certainly don't don't earn the money that they earn through doing nothing, and they take incredibly high risks. At the same mm. time, I think that there are a lot of people that would be willing to take the high risks as well. And I think particularly of, you know, if I think back to like my grandparents um, and and even to some degree my parents, um, their generation. It seems seems to me that the the path to success was buy a house, a small starter house, as soon as possible as soon as you can with a bond and then you sort of like go from that new upgrade, new upgrade. And then eventually like, you know, by the time you retire, you're living the lifestyle that you wanted to live and you've got a whole class of people now like like millennials and and even more recent generations who are crushed under like student debt and just the fact that everything has changed around them Mm -hmm. and they can't afford to go do the, let me buy a starter house and let me have one job my entire life. Um, right. And so they're you know, constantly striving. And that's why like, cryptocurrencies have, have been right. so appealing to um, to those generations because it's a way of gaining the success that their parents were able to slowly claw their way to, but being able to do so despite the crushing mountain of, of, uh, of debt and so on that they all seem to be faced with, that we all seem to be faced with. And that's, that's also where it becomes really interesting because now you're saying to... Those groups of people, like, hey, you want to invest in startups, you want to do the high risk stuff because you're young and because you can afford to. Yeah, there's a way that you can, even though you're not a, you know, a, a a trust fund baby who's able to throw money at a at a VC as a limited partner.
0: Right. Yeah, and I think uh, you you can you can take smaller steps in as well uh, with with that kind of approach. One, one thing that you touched on uh, briefly there, Ricardo, reminds me of, we, we were interviewing last year, I think this was, uh, Andrew Keyes from Consensus, and we dug into, I, I guess I would broadly kind of call it like the tokenization of everything. And I find this a particularly fascinating topic. I saw you wrote about the idea of tokenizing a company, which seems to kind of fall in line with security tokens and this whole idea. I wonder if you could elaborate a little bit more on the idea of tokenizing a company, because I've seen some of your interesting thoughts around how this might work and what the benefits of doing something like this are.
2: Sure. I think, I mean, some of the things that really... Uh, that really appealed to me about, um, about this idea of tokenizing a, tokenizing a company is, I mean, I've done the startup thing a lot and uh, there's the constant drumbeat of the same issues and, and I am, I'm really bad sometimes at just like keeping investors, those early investors in, in uh, giving them an overview of what's happening. You know, like it's so difficult to put out a quarterly newsletter and it's it doesn't like to, to someone who hasn't had a startup, it doesn't seem like it would, it would be a difficult thing, but man, you know there's so, this stuff is moving so quickly, and you start drafting this newsletter, and then by the time it goes out, it's out of date, and uh, you're trying to encapsulate all the things, and you're trying to like you you're careful about how you present the challenges that you're facing because you don't want to sound like an idiot, <laughs> and and you're doing all this stuff, and um and and you're you're not really getting input back from investors. You know, a lot of them will like, you, they, you'll end up with a newsletter that's too dense and they won't read it. Um, and you won't really have a way to engage with them. So one of the things that's really interesting to me about um, tokenizing a company is it doesn't matter how small or big shareholders are. If you issue a million shares, but as tokens, uh, or 10 million shares as tokens, then you can embody those shares with, with voting rights. And you could actually do the voting in a cryptographically secure way. Um, so they would be able to vote. Not, and we're not even talking about voting on the blockchain. You know, you can, they can just like, you can build a totally centralized system for this, but that centralized system can uh, validate that their vote the, the vote that is cast is by the person who holds these tokens. They've got the private key for these tokens. And that becomes really interesting because you can build a totally secure voting mechanism that's like the equivalent of a Twitter poll. You know we're we're thinking of approaching this large customer, should we do that? yes or no you know you could mm. you could do it in a in a robust and secure way and and I think that that is hugely interesting because it means that it it just opens the floodgates to like all sorts of cool interactions with your investors, you know being able to ask investors for recommendations. Uh, I mean, that's an an obvious – or introductions or whatever. That's an obvious one, but it's one that's often done pretty badly. And, you know, you've got other issues as well with that where uh, you don't always know who your investor pool is. You know, you're like, okay, cool. We've got these 10 investors that we sold to, but you don't know that they've set up – like one of them set up a pass-through and they've opened it up to, like, a bunch of other people. And so when you end up sending out a a request for for feedback or – a request for an intro or recommendation—you're only hitting the top of the pool there. You're not actually hitting the people that own the shares. So, so by making this a almost a more personal experience um, for investors, I think there is so much power and so much potential.
0: So, you, it almost sounds like you, you see this as uh, like a communication channel in itself. Absolutely, I, I because you seen. can you can validate that the communication that's coming back is definitely from the
2: person who owns the shares and that alone is, uh, is an, is an invaluable thing.
0: Yeah, no, that, uh, that, that sounds like a fantastic idea. I, I think that is clearly a huge challenge, especially, um, when you're trying to speak to the individual themselves, that is, that has like a, a stake in what's going on in the company. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the other areas to jump on from this, because I think I could honestly talk about uh, tokenization all day. I find this one of the most interesting pieces around blockchain and cryptocurrency as a whole. But we we couldn't have one of the kind of core Monero team founders on the podcast and not discuss privacy. And I, I've seen you write a lot about some of the more emerging technologies or privacy enhancing technologies that are coming through right now, what, what excites you most about what's being discussed in relation to privacy enhancing technologies at the moment?
2: I think one of the things that really excites me is Monero has got a very specific focus. Monero's focus is to provide uh, maximal privacy um, by default and to do so in a way that works just fine on mobile and on web and on everything. And it's it succeeded in that goal, and it's, there's this constant drumbeat of improvement. The Monero Research Lab, uh, which is this like open collective of, uh, of, of scientists and academics trying to improve Monero, they're constantly uh, finding new innovative things um, that Monero can uh, can add in the future. So that really excites me um, with regards to Monero. But in the broader ecosystem, I'm. I'm seriously excited about the amount of effort that's being put into adding privacy to Bitcoin. And I think that there's a lot of the stuff is largely experimental right now. And there's, you know, there's going to be some failed experiments and some successful experiments. And, and honestly, adding privacy to Bitcoin is legitimately hard because ultimately everything's traceable. So, you know, you're basically fighting against the, the very nature of, of Bitcoin's blockchain. But there's a lot Mm. of cool stuff that's being done with things like um, Lightning because you can take stuff off-chain and you can provide added privacy off-chain and then even when channels close and stuff settles back on-chain, it's not a big deal because all you see are the final balances updating. You don't actually see who transferred to who in the interim. And the longer those Mm. channels can stay open, the better it is for privacy. So there's... You, you know, there's a lot of stuff like that. And now you can start leveraging things like, you know, I, I need to enhance my privacy or the privacy of my my Bitcoin transaction. So instead of me pay, uh, paying the person directly, I'm going to send the Bitcoin to someone over the lightning network and they're going to make the on-chain payment for me. So there's stuff like that um, where, you know, and, and there's ways to do that in a, in a, a trustless fashion, um, stuff that's still being researched and designed but there's lots of really cool things that can be done because being off chain is uh, basically the equivalent of like going from Bitcoin into Monero. Right. You know, because you're, you're moving off Bitcoins, uh, all the stuff that's exposed on Bitcoin's chain, and you're moving into like an entirely different world. So over and above that, I'm also really, uh, really interested in the work that's being done by like Wasabi Wallet and Samurai. Um, I think they're both doing excellent work They've had a bit of a tiff lately with each other, and it's. I think that's good. I think that competition between privacy-enhancing technologies is good. I think they should be trying to rip each other's faces off because it's. You know, it's it sharpen. They sharpen each other that way, and uh, yeah. they make it a. Um, they make it an incredibly um, competitive environment, uh, which is ultimately for the the benefit of the consumer of the end user. So that's despite their, their differences and their little, their little tiff, I think it's ultimately a good
0: thing. Well, usually the, the crypto space is so mellow and f- free I know, of drama. It's so right? relaxed. So it's so unusual that anyone <laughs> would feel strongly about the thing they're working on. <laughs> how do you how do you respond because i've i've listened to interviews you've been on in the past and um not just with yourself but um people from teams like zcash and a bunch of the other big privacy related uh, projects and there there seems to be some of these common arguments against privacy related technologies and i think less kind of some of the more off-chain solutions that you talk about with bitcoin and more um kind of like anonymous addresses, things like that, uh, or stealth addresses, should I say. So one of the things I hear a lot is like people that are good actors shouldn't require privacy solutions. And how do you tend to approach that? Topic. I know it's quite broad, but I, I just hear this so often, and I, I often want to understand, as someone who's so deeply entrenched in thinking about privacy from this angle, how you think about responding to some of those.
2: Yeah, it's a good question. I it, it infuriates me the fact that it even comes up at all in in the public sphere, because privacy is really the natural state of things, right? I mean, if you if you go to the the bathroom at a public restroom you go into that bathroom and you close the door. You don't leave the door open because you might be planning to overthrow the government inside the cubicle. And so everyone needs a, to be able be to monitor. be a strange monitor. place. <laughs> everyone better be able to monitor your toilet activities. <laughs> I mean, it's ludicrous. It's totally ludicrous yeah. to even think that way. We close the door. We want privacy. We're doing our private thing inside the bathroom. Thank you very much. I'd like the door closed. And uh, And yet we go like... Oh well, yeah, well, that's fine, but we can't have digital privacy. Um, you know, that's oh you know, everyone needs to be able to read our emails because what if we're planning to overthrow the government via email, which also seems ludicrous because if you were planning to overthrow the government, surely you'd meet with the other people in person, rather than so what you know sending an email. So
0: what I'm hearing here, Ricardo, is I need to go to the bathroom with the door open from now on. I think it's just just to be safe. Um, and, and in fact, in fact, the line of reasoning is something I've used with people
2: um, on Twitter, not so much the bathroom thing, but I've said to them when they say to me, oh, yes, but, you know, like, um, like you, if you don't need privacy if you've got nothing to hide. I'm like, OK, great. In order for us to be sure as the general public, in order for us to be sure that you are not a terrorist, would you mind putting three months bank statements up on Twitter so that we can inspect hmm. it and make sure you haven't been receiving payments from like Al Qaeda, um, and no one's taken me up on that offer, and I'm not sure why. <laughs> I guess it's because you know maybe then they realise that everyone needs privacy, not just or they are in fact from Al Qaeda. Or, or the, you know it could be that. Um, <laughs> in fact, that's that's also entirely possible. I never thought of that. <laughs> um, but it is it is crazy that like that uh, when you pointed out to them that they they. Don't even. I mean, sometimes they do do an immediate turnabout. I have had people who have gone like, you see the penny drop, and you can you can almost like, over the magic of Twitter, hear the the gears going in their head, and you can you can sort of hear them, like processing that and going like, wow, okay, I never thought of that. I actually don't want my bank statements all over Twitter. Um, I guess some privacy is good.
0: Right, and I, I think that it, it it seems to me that perfectly falls in line with a lot of the debates around privacy. And I, I would argue a lot of the things that come up in blockchain and the broader space where everything seems to be an argument on the extreme and the nuance Absolutely. of things is often lost yeah. as, as we're kind of coming close to time. I wanted to just get one slight tangent that's highly related to, to privacy. And I wanted to just get your general thoughts. We've been asking a lot of our a lot of our guests this question as they've been coming on over the past few weeks, and I, I I'm already anticipating the the sigh that is going to come from you because I'm going to ask what your thoughts are on Libra, uh, the the cryptocurrency <laughs> launched by Facebook. And uh, broad, broadly speaking, do do you see this project? as something that is a force for good in the crypto movement or evil?
2: Yeah, that's a, it's actually a really good question. So I, I don't know if I believe that people are going to flock to using Libra, realize that Libra is evil or bad or whatever, and then switch to using Bitcoin or go and discover Bitcoin or whatever. I, I suspect that people will use Libra and go, well, it'll be like PayPal, right? It'll be like, well, it mostly works for me, or I can somehow fudge it to work for me if I just do these 13 steps. And so that's fine. I don't mind the, the friction because everything else is relatively easy. So I'm just going to run with it. And that will be really sad if that's the case, because uh, Libra is bad for privacy. They They have... Absolutely no interest in um, adding privacy of any sort in fact by by their own admission by David Marcus's own admission, privacy is bad and mm-hmm. so I am I'm deeply concerned that Libra will end up doing more harm than good because it will basically just make Facebook the law enforcement agency and the enforcers of uh, the keepers of what is what is uh, potentially bad and what is potentially not bad you know there'll be the investigating officer on on the case and and that's not really i, I don't see why facebook should be given that power at all
0: yeah i think it's uh it's it's a good point I, I think that some of the more concerning aspects for me lie kind of outside well i mean of course with libra itself but or almost more outside for me the fact that facebook is Launching Calibra, the wallet solution, which is basically their way of now ultimately owning the Libra ecosystem and the payment ecosystem. Uh, I, I think one of the counter arguments that I, I think is very valid in, in this whole debate is around Facebook's relatively unique position uh, right now to give people a taste for crypto in mass. And I do think that there is something in the fact that, um, while to an extent, I I definitely agree, I don't think people are going to use Libra and then be like, oh, no, this isn't private enough for me. Otherwise, people would be switching off Facebook and then they move on to Bitcoin. I wonder if with their move into the space, this will at least shine a light and calm some of the kind of more hyperbolic concerns around it still Bitcoin just being for criminals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, the I guess the the biggest issue is there's a a lot of conversation around Libra, which is not incorrect, where, where people are basically alluding to the fact that uh, Libra is not a cryptocurrency. It's not like Bitcoin, and I think if that becomes the common dialogue, then then I don't know if it'll if it'll really change things much. At least, you know, not ready for regulators. Because if you look at the conversation that regulators have had around uh, around Libra, they're they're not stupid. They yeah, um, they they immediately went after Facebook,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and uh, and they are they have enough. Uh, they they might not directly have great great knowledge about cryptocurrencies, but they have people on their staff that uh, that are educated on, on the topic. And uh, those people have said to have been able to say to them like this is not the same as Bitcoin. You can stop Libra, you can't stop Bitcoin.
0: Yeah, and I think that the fact that making sure that people always remember this is ultimately a commercial venture from Facebook, Uber, Mastercard, Visa, all on the Libra Association, and it is not even necessarily, in my opinion, in their interest to push the fact that this is a cryptocurrency. If anything, uh, I think that like labeling it that way, which I, th- I think from a technology point of view, there are clearly holes in in that. But them almost having a softer approach will probably make it a lot easier with regulators that way, right?
2: Yeah, and, and that's why I'm very interested in seeing how things play out. I, I do hope that it, uh, that this ultimately forces regulators to, to get clued up, to get more clued up than they have been. And, and that's really possibly one of the better outcomes from this is regulators going and, and being like, I need to understand exactly how Libra is not the same as Facebook.
0: Yeah, I think that, that's certainly a potential silver lining. I mean, I'm sure we're going to see how all of this unfolds, but Ricardo, it's been great to get some of your opinions, your knowledge, and I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak to us on the podcast. What's the best place for some of our listeners to go and find out more about what you're working on and generally stay in touch with, with what you're doing?
2: Best place to follow me is on Twitter. I'm at FluffyPony on Twitter, spelt the way it sounds. And uh, for Monero, getmonero.org is the the website. Um, I'm also currently working on Tari, which is a decentralized assets protocol that's being architected on top of Monero uh, for things like security tokens. Um, And if you want to learn more about Tari, then tari.com,
0: T-A-R-I. And yeah, it's been great having me. Thanks so much. It's been absolutely my pleasure. We'll make sure we share out all those links in the show notes. Uh, Thanks again, Ricardo. Cool, thanks so much. Thanks
1: for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, give us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform. We really appreciate that. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing. And you can follow us on Twitter at The offering, as well as email us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com if you'd like to get in touch.